To begin the message this morning, while I reattach my microphone, I'm going to start with uh, a short podcast clip from a couple of contemporary spiritual thought leaders. Yeah, because most people, when they have success or they're accomplishing things that they always dreamed of doing, there's kind of a emptiness to it. I would include myself. Yeah. But where you're like, man, I thought this would, I thought this would be better. Well, it's like, always it's the illusion of having a goal that is supposed to satisfy how you feel. I mean, it just does not how the world works, you know. Well, what's that, what's that old phrase of the journey is? Who, what was that quote? There's been a bunch of different quotes about this. The journey is better than well, the it's end. Not, well, yeah, I mean, it's not the destination; it's the journey. There's many, yeah, yeah. Sort of all kinds of things like that. that. Well, we see that happen with sports teams when they win the title. Pat Riley always did the disease of more about it, but just in general, like you can get everybody to, to you know, somebody like Michael Porter on Denver, where he's like, you know what, we have a chance to win the title. I'm going to give up something here. But is he going to be like that next year? Is he is is it going to be like, hey man, it's Michael Porter time, time for me to get more shots. I need to show that I. Or is it going to be like, you know what, I'm super happy in this situation. I hit the jackpot with this Jokic guy. I can't. I, I have the best teammate in the league, and I'm just going to ride this out for the eight, next eight years, and this will make me super happy. Or is he going to go, you know what would be better if I was the best player on the team, and then he goes yeah. a different direction. I mean, like like satisfaction or the idea of being satisfied uh, just does not merge well with these two guys talking. One is Bill Simmons. He's uh, a sports thought person. He's been writing, talking about sports for decades now. Uh, the other person is Chuck Klosterman. Chuck is a writer, fiction, nonfiction, essayist, and he's often a guest on podcasts with Bill Simmons. So these are two sports guys, and I was listening to him talk, and they're talking about championships and uh, media and TV. Actually, this conversation follows on a discussion that they were having about the television show The Bear, which just dropped season two. And so what they were puzzled by and actually intrigued by was the central character in the bear is the head chef and in season two he attains success in his endeavors but he is profoundly unhappy he realizes no matter how successful I am at this I am not going to be happy and so this then spills into a conversation for them about this topic in the realm of sports so again, spiritual religious thought leaders, these guys are not. <laughs> but I think what was intriguing to me, I was driving in my car listening, and I, I actually did start to cry. Because it's just two guys musing on what's meaningful in life. And they were going after this concept of how deeply structured into all of life is the notion of accomplishment. Crossing some line of demarcation, arriving at a desired lauded goal or endpoint or place or setting, and then realizing, huh, this doesn't scratch the itch of meaningfulness in the way that I thought it would. What is it that actually makes life worthwhile? And I think this hit me because both of my involvement in the spiritual endeavor, which 
to me in Christianity writ large, we map onto the notion of accomplishment as much as anybody else. But then it's also the case that I'm in a few months gonna turn 60. <laughs> and so it's like, so just to say straightforwardly, I'm not in any way, nor is my wife, neither of us thinking about retirement. <laughs> but it's in the air. It is the season. Are you thinking about it? Are you doing it? I'm doing it. I'm in phased retirement. I'm in retirement ceremonies all over the place. And can you capture the meaningfulness of a life? Can I capture the meaningfulness of what it's meant to me to be a pastor, a psychiatrist, a father, a husband? Can I capture it in a ceremony? And so for these guys, the touch point is sports. The metric for success in sports is championships and awards. Did you win a championship? Did you get an award at the latest ESPY awards ceremony? Or did you get the most valuable something? It's what any of us who have participated in sports or who watch sports know that we are supposed to attain to winning a championship. And there's this fantasy that when you do, something happens. It's like you enter the United Lounge at the airport, right? And there are people there who are kind to you. It's a different world. You watch from the window all the plebeians, you know, milling about in their anxiety, and you have a lovely chair and refreshments and somebody helping, you know. It's as if we think that when we attain the accomplishment, we enter a different world that's more alive and vibrant and fulfilling and rewarding, and we become somehow different people. It's just not the case, right? What you realize is you're still the same person that you were, and after the parade is done, you're just sort of off and running, trying to do it again. It's part of the reason we have trophies, right? Because we need to put a piece of metal, something substantial, together. Because the thing itself turns out to be less substantial than we had hoped for. <laughs> and it maps, too, in my experience, onto religion, onto Christianity. You know, my wife and I, and the denomination that we were a part of, and this would be true of all these organizations, when we go to the meetings, you would know who had accomplished something because they would go to the breakout sessions for the big churches. And because they had programs and they had a new effort, they had a new enterprise, they had a new initiative that they had launched, a new building, a wing, a whatever. And so, again, there was this sense, even within the Christian religious spiritual endeavor, that accomplishment, crossing a line of demarcation, is what mattered. And so I was listening to these guys and thinking, oh, here they are offering something, and it's not a new thought on their part, and they acknowledge that. There have been people who have thought long, deep, and hard about what is meaningful, crossing a line of, a line of demarcation or something else that we'll call journeying. And I just thought, oh, that sounds different, that sounds lovely, that sounds freeing. And it brought me to Jesus. 
at least as a starting point for the conversation, illuminated something of him to me that I found to be quite intriguing. We first meet Jesus in the account of his life that's told by his closest friend, John. So John the disciple introduces us to Jesus. First, John introduces us to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the preparer of the way for Jesus. So we meet John the Baptist at the beginning of the story of Jesus, and John the Baptist says, I am preparing the way. You are going to encounter somebody who is more important than me, uh, who I am just here to introduce you to. So he provides a very intriguing introduction to Jesus, and then Jesus shows up, and it looks like this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. And he goes on and he says lots of kind of cool things about Jesus, diminishing himself, elevating Jesus. And then it says, the next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he, as he watched, Jesus walked by. And he exclaimed, look, there is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, come and see. So they go and spend some time with Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So from the first moment that we meet Jesus, he is a man on the move. He is coming. He is passing by. <laughs> the disciples who follow Jesus, the first thing they see of him is his backside. And if they want to have anything to do with him, they have to go catch up to him. And Jesus' first instructions to them are follow me. Jesus is not situated in the synagogue. He is not situated in the church. He is not a guru perched on a ledge on a mountaintop with his legs crossed where you come to him and then go away. If you want to have anything to do with him, you must be on the move. He is always going from city to city, village to village, town to town, always in motion. All the encounters, all the stories that we have of Jesus are times when the journeying is brought to a halt. Jesus is a part of a parade. Lots of people gather around, walking with him, one village to the next, to the next, to the next, until somebody calls out, blind Bartimaeus from the side of the road, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Well, let's halt the parade. Jesus marching through a town on the way to Jerusalem, and there's Zacchaeus up in the tree. Jesus on the way to Jairus to heal Jairus' daughter, and a woman touches him. Oh, we got to stop. It's always in motion, always journeying. I tried to think of when Jesus went somewhere with the intention of encountering somebody, like going to a destination to meet somebody, and the only one I could come up with was Jesus saying, I'm going to the home of Lazarus because he has died and I must raise him again. Right? So just continually being on the journey, being on the road. And so a part of what happens because of that 
is the journeying becomes what's important. One of the challenges in piecing together the life of Jesus is little attention or the importance of where he came from and where he's going is diminished. We a lot of times just don't know. They don't name the cities. They don't name the villages where he's coming from, where he's going to. It's the journeying. It's being on the move. And so, again, all occurrences, all encounters with Jesus are fortuitous. It's just who happened to be there when Jesus was on the move. And it becomes something that Jesus names explicitly. In one of his journeys, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But that one said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. On the move, on the move, on the move. And Jesus institutionalizes it. The 12 have been journeying with him, and he feels at some point they're ready to launch out into their own journeying. And so it says, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, not even a tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. Whoever, wherever they do not welcome you, as you are leaving that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And so again, journeying, journeying, always journeying, and providing instructions for how to do journeying well. It feels to me like it becomes not just a thing in and of the moment for Jesus, but a metaphor for at least in my experience, how Christianity itself has been practiced. I grew up in a Christian tradition, which I think reflects many, where we paid a huge amount of attention to where we as human beings, as humankind, have come from and where we're going. You know, we <clears throat> want to know, how did we come to be? What does our story tell us about that? Because that's really important information to us. But even more important is the destination. Where is it we're going to go to? What do we get to? What is the accomplishment? What is the line of demarcation that we cross where once we've arrived there, everything is good? We can call it heaven if you want. It's a central preoccupation with us as religious people and in the Christian tradition. The challenge, as I see it, is at least twofold. First, we really don't have a lot of information about any of this stuff. We have these fragmentary images and metaphors about where we've come from, but they actually don't tell us that much. And the same is true with the destination. We might think we know a lot about what it is that we're going to get to, but the truth, again, is it's fragmentary images and metaphors. We make much of little. And it becomes a central preoccupation for us, nonetheless, to figure out how to get there. What is it we have to do to make sure we get to the right place? 
But in my mind, it does a couple of things that to me are troubling. The first is the same problem with winning a championship. I have this imagination, no matter how lovely the description of arriving at this place, heaven, we cannot get away from the anxiety that it might not be as great as we think it's supposed to be. Because we get to a place that's lovely and then we try to figure out, well, what do we do? What do we do once we get there? Will it be satisfying? Will it be enjoyable? I realized that I would have to be rewired in terms of what is appealing to me, what produces meaningfulness and joy if heaven, as it has been described, is what is supposed to be the reward at the end of it all. Because I cannot figure out, no matter how lovely it is, if I am not on the move, if I am not doing something that feels purposeful, I don't get it. But the other challenge to me, if this is how things work, that the reward, the meaningfulness of a thing is the accomplishment, is crossing the line of demarcation, it really affects my social behavior in the here and now. Because if this is the preeminent goal, it's where I need to get to, and I'm figuring out how to do it, I will tend to, I will have the propensity to look at people in a utilitarian fashion. Do you help me accomplish my goal? Do you have influence, connections, uh, power, abilities? Will being connected to you help me to get there, or will it not? Is there something about you, about who you are, that might make the likelihood of a good outcome for me less, might diminish my chances. And it also affects how I relate to you. I would objectify you too, because that's the goal for you if it's the goal for me. And so the way that I will relate to you will be profoundly affected by this conception of what's meaningful in life. And so I find those things troubling. And the same is true, of course, in the personal sphere. Again, I mentioned I'm close to 60, and so I'm trying to figure out how do I evaluate what's meaningful and what's not, and can it all be encapsulated in a ceremony, in an event, in something that makes meaningful an accomplishment. And so then I was driving along listening to these guys, and I hear the possibility of the journey. And again, I know that many people have thought deeply about this, spiritual thinkers across you know, the years, decades, millennia. But here are two just normal guys, kind of troubled by this, trying to figure it out. But the instant I began to hear, oh, the journey, the quality of the journey, the experience of journeying, what if somewhere in there was what made it all meaningful, was where meaningfulness was derived? It immediately felt freeing because I thought, it's not the accomplishment, it's not the arrival. I can let go of that. I can release that and be freed from that. And suddenly the energy going into producing those kinds of outcomes is diminished, is unnecessary. It caused me to realize how much, you know, the world that I inhabit, that I think we all inhabit, 
focuses on these kinds of things. You know, whether it's in school, graduating from one stage to the next, to the next, to the next, or in work, getting a promotion, getting a title, how we do it socially with the kinds of connections that we make, social outcomes, so much energy given to those things, where instead it could be the experience of the journey. And it also made me realize really quickly how it would change my, my experience of being social, how I think about people, how we would think about each other. Because instead of a utilitarian approach to connections with people, all of a sudden what I'm looking for instead is good traveling companions, right? And that's a completely different thing. I start to think, well, what would make me a good traveling companion to others? And what would make others a good traveling companion for me? It's a completely different metric, different aspects of ethics, of social behavior, of temperament. I mean, you and I, we could think pretty quickly. You know, what is it that makes somebody an easy traveling companion? And what if that was how we looked at each other? What if that was what we valued? What if that was what constituted the social fabric of our corporateness? It made me think about our journey as a church. You know, a part of our story is that we inhabited a more conservative approach to church that included exclusion as a possibility. And one of the transformations that was required to go from that to being inclusive was giving up the centrality of arrival, of knowing where we were going to arrive at together and making sure that we got there both individually and corporately. That had to go. We had to realize that we are humble travelers on a journey to we're not quite sure where. Right? I mean, that's one of the things you have to give up is knowing with certainty what it is you are going to arrive at. Instead of just saying, we're on a journey together towards what we hope is goodness, towards God, towards generosity, towards love. But we don't know exactly what that looks like, and we really don't anticipate ever arriving there, and we kind of don't want to because we really sort of like journeying together, and that just feels okay. And I realized, too, just uh, the deep, with deep gratitude, the awareness that I am in a situation where I have amazing fellow travelers. I have my wife, who is an amazing travel companion, amongst many other good qualities. And I feel like the ethic in this church, too, that we have crafted... So much of the stuff that we've let go that used to be important, that was central to this notion of accomplishment, of crossing a line of demarcation, of that being the goal, of arriving at the good place, making sure that was the outcome, and embracing instead being fellow travelers together on our journeys, supporting each other, being in journeying with each other, a completely different ethic, practice, values, but it feels like we've got that here. 
I have the sense of us being committed to that as, as a way of life, as, of that as what makes life meaningful, that we are traveling together and that we are trying to do it well. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis, to me, kind of captures the both and, that we are actually adventuring. We are on a trajectory. We are going somewhere, but it is by no means that you arrive at some static endpoint. In uh, his book, The Last Battle, where he brings the whole thing to a close, there's this moment where all those who have appeared in the previous books are gathered together, and they come into the next Narnia, the real Narnia, that's vibrant and alive and sharp and clear and bracing. And he says this, Peter, high king of Narnia, said, Aslan, shut the door. Peter, shivering with cold, leaned out into the darkness and pulled the door to. It scraped over ice as he pulled it. Then, rather clumsily, for even in that moment his hands had gone numb and blue, he took out a golden key and locked it. They had seen strange things enough through that doorway, but it was stranger than any of them to look around and find themselves in warm daylight, the blue sky above them, Flowers at their feet and laughter in Aslan's eyes. He turned swiftly round, crouched lower, lashed himself with his tail and shot away like a golden arrow. Come further in, come further up, he shouted over his shoulder. But who could keep up with him at that pace? They set out walking westward to follow him. And so that becomes the new normal. Further up, further in, every creature they encounter Moving, moving, always moving, faster, further, together, together, further up and further in until they arrive at a garden. I see, said Lucy at last thoughtfully, I see now, this garden is like the stable. It is far bigger inside than it was outside. Of course, daughter of Eve, said, fawn, said the fawn, Tumnus. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden at all, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains. But they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said. This is still Narnia and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below, just as it was. More real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. I see world within world. Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Mr. Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you go, as you continue to go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. And so I feel my invitation into the journeying, that the journeying is the thing that we never come to an end, and that the meaningfulness is how well we do it together. Together.